0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 31, and another edition of Teaching Thursdays. We're continuing our conversation about dispensationalism and covenant theology by talking about a highly debated topic, and that is how to understand the last days. People ask again and again, when is the end? When will the end happen? There's been tons of disagreements throughout church history, but it turns out that how we answer that question actually reveals our Bible interpretation method. In other words, how you interpret the Bible will be demonstrated by the way you understand the last days. Now, it's typical for people to kind of dismiss the last days as one of those kind of irrelevant debates. We can't know when the last days actually will be, so therefore we should not even speculate or spend time. But it does matter because it influences the way we understand the Bible as a whole. So today we're talking about the way that the last days is explained to us from scripture. And I think by the end of this episode you'll have a good grip and a good grasp of the concept of the last days not from a speculative perspective, but from a biblical perspective. So thank you for listening to this edition of Teaching Thursdays. And thank you for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. All right, we're in the fifth week this morning. And uh, I still don't know exactly how many weeks this will be, but probably nine or ten, so we're pretty much right at the halfway point. And it's fitting because in dispensational theology, um, I've mentioned a few times now that the emphasis is heavily on the last days. So here we are uh, this morning, and we're going to be talking about understanding the end. And that is, again, a huge conversation piece in dispensational theology and and in covenant theology as well but because there's such a heavy emphasis in dispensational theology we want to we want to start out by having a right understanding first of all what what does that mean when we're talking about the end and particularly what does it mean when we talk about the phrase the last days so last week we covered meaning and language we did a little bit of groundwork to get us to this conversation and study this morning Um, and we'll we'll be referring back to a few things that we mentioned last week we'll start out by looking at the first chapter of Hebrews um, and what I would like to do also is assign uh, two other verses if I could have two volunteers I'll go ahead and have you all right you can look up uh, first Peter chapter 1 verse 20 you can look up Acts chapter 2, verse 16. You can go ahead and have those ready. And I'll read, uh, I'll read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And whenever I'm done, then y'all can read First Peter passage and Acts 2 passage. Now, just for the sake of uh, continuity, I'll go ahead and read verse 1 as well in, uh, in Hebrews. So Hebrews 1, 1, here's what it says. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You read 1 Peter one twenty now. Okay. And then Acts 2.16. Okay. Uh, What's the common phrase in all of those three verses? Anybody catch it? if you caught it the last days yeah exactly and uh, that phrase as I mentioned earlier we're talking about understanding the end and that phrase the last days (laughs) carries a huge weight on how we understand that and what that means Um, the last days concept really in my mind is what differentiates covenant theology and dispensational theology um, in a huge way um, because As I mentioned before, we're running through all this um, successively so that the idea of the church-Israel distinction, the literal interpretation of Scripture, it all leads to that last day's idea because all of those play into that in dispensational theology and in any other theological system. So that's why we've been doing the groundwork these last few weeks leading up to this idea. But the last day concept in the Bible... Is not necessarily as ambiguous as you might think especially when you get into dispensational theology I mean just type in dispensational theology in a Google search click images and you'll see all of these complex timeline charts with these like little sub brackets and circles and it, it just gets really crazy And, I mean, really what you do is you give up. You throw your Bible down. You say, I'll just listen to the experts because I have no chance of understanding this. But really it's not as complicated as that um, signals for us. Because quite simply, um, the last days, in a broad sense, means the time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. That's a very basic easy to understand, easy to grasp idea of what we mean by the last days. We saw that in all three of those verses that were quoted. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, these last days being the time that Christ has come. What has been revealed was revealed by prophets, etc. But in these last days, Christ has come. That's how God has spoken to us. And then he says, "Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world." In First Peter, one twenty, Christ was revealed to us in the last times, in the last days. And then in Acts chapter two, right after the Holy Spirit is given, and Peter's this is right in the middle of Peter's sermon um, at Pentecost, and Peter quotes Joel, the prophet of the Old Testament. That what was happening at that time, what Joel prophesied about as the last days was happening right there in front of their eyes in Acts chapter 2. Now again, all of that to say, when we're talking about the last days, we simply mean the time from Christ's first coming. When Christ entered into history in the incarnation, we were in the last days from that moment on. And it's not necessarily so much... To speak of chronological succession you see that a lot in dispensational theology that the last days is this chronological timeline that's why you, when you type it in you that's what you see you see a timeline a chronological timeline to where this happens then this happens then this happens then this happens when this happens these three things happen and that type of thing and my daughter agrees with me <laughs> But what we're talking about really in the last days is not so much an idea of the end of the world as much as we're talking about the fullness of revelation in the scope of redemptive history. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've talked about redemptive history last week and a couple weeks prior to that as well. And in redemptive history, we talked about the whole of the Bible when that promise is given in Genesis 3.15 that this promised seed would come to crush the head of the serpent and redeem those found in that offspring, that truth, that promise is playing itself out all the way through the rest of the Bible. That's what we call redemptive history, the history of redemption, the idea of redemption, the promise of redemption, and how that's played out and fulfilled throughout the rest of the Bible. That's the essence of covenant theology that what is revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks to that promise, speaks to that promise of redemption. And in that, what we're saying in the last days and what the biblical authors are saying in the last days as well is what we mean is that when Christ enters into human history, no greater revelation or time frame or moment is going to come after that. Christ is the fullness of revelation. Christ is the fullness of that promise accomplished on the cross. So when Christ comes, what we're waiting on from the moment that he ascended into heaven is for Christ to return. There is no other heightened moment of revelation, no greater time in history that is going to precede that. I hope that makes sense. So what that means is in terms of revelation, Christ is the fullness of revelation. Therefore, no other time period or dispensation, if you will, is going to come and subvert that. That'll make sense when we start looking at how dispensational theology understands the end and to lead into that. Um, Let's talk about how dispensational theology names our current life, our current situation, our current world that we live in as the church age. That's a common phrase that you find in dispensational theology. And remember, we mentioned back when we were talking about the church-Israel distinction in dispensational theology. That what we're in right now is the church age that is absolutely distinct in their system from the rest of history. In other words, God's plan with Israel was a plan with ethnic Israel. This church age that we're in is merely a parenthesis in history. This really isn't the, the, the big deal. This is, like I said, the kind of the preview to the movie or the intermission to the movie. And then whenever God is done with the church age in dispensational theology, the church is raptured out of the world, and then it's back to business with ethnic Israel. So that's that, That's a big distinction with dispensational theology and covenant theology. So the way that they identify the church is in an idea of how Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled if you will turn to Acts chapter 2 which was read earlier and we'll start thinking through how this all makes sense so in Acts chapter chapter 2 a lot has happened just in those first two chapters The disciples are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, Christ ascends into heaven. They come together. They're praying. They have a replacement for Judas. The Holy Spirit comes. And then Peter takes that opportunity to preach his sermon at Pentecost. And that's right in the middle of what he's... This is almost his thesis statement of his sermon by quoting Joel... And so you see that um, in starting in verse 14, especially, in, in Acts chapter 2. Um, I will read 14 through 21 in Acts chapter 2. So here's the beginning of Peter's sermon. This is what he says. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who, are, who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And they said that because they started speaking in different tongues, different languages. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a lot happening there. But those last, verse 17 all the way through 21, is a direct quote from the book of Joel. Joel being a prophet in the Old Testament. Peter quotes four verses from the second chapter of Joel, um, which we'll look at. Later, But really, they're right here in front of our eyes. And in this, there's a few things that we want to understand. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, Peter cites an Old Testament prophecy. And he says, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. What is happening right before your eyes is what Joel was prophesying about. And how does Joel prophesy about that? Well, he opens it up by saying, in the last days, this is what will happen. Okay. So there's that there's that phrase again, the last days. And that's how Peter uses that. So in simple terms, understand that what Peter does here is Peter uses this prophecy and that phrase, the last days, to... Include the church's presence in whatever is happening. And that's important because in the dispensational concept of the last days, the last days is typically thought of as this concentrated moment at the very end of history of which the Gentile church is not there anymore. It's raptured they are gone the last days is all about what god is doing with ethnic israel but peter cites that verse and includes the church in it i mean you can't even include the church anymore because the, the holy spirit had just fallen on everybody and he immediately goes to this verse to show that what's happening is taking place within let's call the church age what's happening in this prophecy is what's happening in the church age And this is important too because it touches on what we talked about last week about meaning. Remember we looked at Luke chapter 24 when the disciples were on the road to Emmaus. Christ shows up and he shows them the right way to understand the Old Testament in light of what he had just done on Calvary. And how does he do that? Well, he points them to the law and the prophets and he says... Here's what all of these had to say about me. Or another way to put it, all of these were pointing towards me. And so he points back to all of the the whole scope of the Old Testament and shows that he is the center and the main idea in all of it. And that's exactly what you see in Acts chapter 2. It's actually really interesting because the whole of the book of Acts is to prove the validity of what Christ did that's exactly what Christ tells them to do be my witnesses witness to what I have done testify to what I have done and that's what Peter and Paul and all the others in the book of Acts are doing how do they do that they keep pointing back to the Old Testament that's exactly what Peter does here and as you look through the book of Acts you again see um, time and time again how the writers in this, let's say Peter and Paul especially, because they're the probably the most prominent disciples in the book of Acts, how both of them again and again keep pointing back to the Old Testament to prove um, that all of these things are taking place in fulfillment of this because Christ is at the center of all of it. And that's an important idea because really when we think about the Old Testament, it's very common in dispensational theology that the Old Testament is almost exclusively about ethnic Israel. Now that's true, but the, the word that is problematic in that is exclusively. It is true that the Lord did start his work of redemption with a people, ethnic Israel. But the whole point that we're making is that the church doesn't replace Israel Nor does the church grow up as a separate entity of Israel. But the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The promise was for all nations to be blessed, he says to Abraham. The promise was for all who are in the offspring, Genesis 3.15. Remember, you only have Adam and Eve and the serpent. You don't have any nations. You don't have anybody. And the point is being found in that promise. Adam representing all of mankind, all nations, all peoples. And so it's really important when we think about that because what Peter is doing to Gentiles and what Paul is doing to Gentiles is they're looking at these Old Testament citations and including it in the idea of the church. That's exactly what Jesus taught in Luke, and that's what they do as a test case, really, all throughout the book of Acts. <clears throat> so, the point I want to make very clearly is that what is happening in the last days, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, is in Scripture seen as within the framework of the church, of the life of the church. You don't see a parenthesis in Scripture that says all of those Old Testament things are on delay and they'll happen later but first we're going to do this church thing for now so I can think of no greater uh, debated passage of scripture or book of the Bible when, we, when it comes to the distinction between the church and Israel and the last times as the book of Romans if you will turn to the ninth chapter of Romans it's common that when somebody gets to Romans 9 especially, um, we start getting sweaty at the palms and <laughs> we start having all these ideas about God just completely obliterated every time we read the next verse to the next verse. Because for most of us, when it comes to reform theology or the idea of election, uh, this is really where it's just met front and center. And sometimes we have a hard time uh, really reconciling what's being said here. uh, But it's important because what Paul is doing in Romans 9, 10, and 11, first and foremost, is one thought being played out. So we don't want to isolate. We want to understand the full idea of what he's saying. In the interest of time, we don't have time to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 this morning. But I would highly encourage you to do that later on today, um, to understand Paul's whole thought. What you see in Romans 9 is Paul begins a thought. He ends the thought at the end of chapter 11. And then Romans 12 starts with, therefore. So he's completing a thought here for us. And the thought has everything to do with God's purpose of election. God's plan for Jews and Gentiles and how that will play out. That's exactly what our discussion is when it comes to whether we would identify as dispensational or covenantal in our theology. So what I want to do is, in the interest of time, I just want to point to one particular concept in Romans 9, one in Romans 10, and one in Romans 11. And my homework to you, go back home and read all three of them in their entirety. That will help you greatly. So to start out with, I want to show you I've alluded to this already but I want to show you that in Romans 9 there's one Israel and that Israel is in relation to promise not ethnicity look at that through a few things that Paul says first and foremost he mentions ethnic Jews he's thinking about those ethnic Jews who have rejected the gospel have shown hostility to Christ and what he came to do and he's talking about them in verse 2 and says I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, God <clears throat> all, blessed forever. Amen. In that passage, I just want to point out what Paul is not advocating here is universalism of ethnic Jews. He's not saying that to them belong all these things, therefore, all of them are going to automatically be saved. That's not, that's not anywhere in his argument. And the reason for that is the very next verse. This is what we're talking about when we think about Israel according to promise. But it is not as though, this is verse 6, not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, Again, this goes right back to everything we've been talking about in terms of the Jew-Gentile distinction. The promise was always a matter of promise, not contingency of ethnicity. Here's what he says. He quotes from Genesis 21. He says, but through Isaac, this is the word... That God gave to Abraham Genesis 21 he says through Isaac shall your offspring be named this means here's Paul's conclusion this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as offspring now that is hugely important for us because again when we think about Israel We never want to say that the church replaces Israel. Unfortunately, in dispensational theology, that is the most common dart thrown at covenant theology. They normally summarize covenant theology as saying the church replaces Israel. The church steals all the promises from Israel. That's just nowhere in here. What Paul is saying is that Israel has always been Israel according to promise not according to ethnicity. It certainly started a particular ethnicity, but it was never restricted to that ethnicity, if I can put it that way. And you see that, don't you? You see it in the history of Abraham and his descendants. You see it with Jacob and Esau. They were just as much both ethnic Jews You see it with Isaac and Ishmael. They were both sons of Abraham, but one of them was a son of promise. And that's the point that we see here in (coughs) verse 10, especially when it comes to Jacob and Esau. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born... And had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion. <laughs> On whom I will have compassion. This is what we would call sovereign grace. God's power and God's prerogative of grace and mercy. That's what it means when we're speaking of election, and that's what it means when we're speaking of the promised offspring. The word promise has everything to do with what God fully intends to do and what God has vowed to do in covenant. And in that, Paul uses an example of Jacob and Esau to show that it was all a matter of promise and God's free grace and mercy, not a matter of ethnicity. Because both of them were brothers, so they belonged to the same family. And that's the argument that Paul makes to show that Israel, as an entity, was always a matter of promise, not a matter of being an ethnic Jew or not. So that's the focus of this. And even in that word election, we want to recognize that promise offspring not only points to Abraham, but points to Christ, right? We looked and saw that several weeks ago that Christ was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul makes that abundantly clear in the book of Galatians that the promise offspring is Christ. That's how we share in all of this because we belong to Christ and have union with Christ. And what he reveals here is the reality of salvation. Okay, He shows that salvation was always of the same matter in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because Paul's talking about election and salvation right here. And the way that he shows the way it works... And how we should understand it is an Old Testament example. What that means for us in terms of last days is we should conclude there is never, nor has there ever, 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 ever been any other way of salvation but in Christ. And there will never be another way of salvation but in Christ. That doesn't matter so much in our culture today as it did when dispensationalism was an up and coming system because originally classical dispensationalism taught that after the church is raptured God's dealing with ethnic Jews will be a matter of faith and works and what that meant was they would build a new physical temple and reestablish literal animal sacrifices and that is a huge problem (laughs) for many reasons so look at romans 10 so romans 9 taught us there's one israel now again please go back and read the whole chapters i'm not trying to pick and choose we just have limited time to look at all these verses romans 9 taught us there's one israel according to promise romans 10 teaches us there's one way and one time to be saved interesting fact here Romans 10 is 21 verses long and 12 of those verses are Old Testament citations I mean more than half of the chapter Paul is just quoting Old Testament verses Um, You may not be able to see it, but I like to highlight Old Testament quotations in my Bible in green. I have different colors here, but there's a lot of green on this page. That's because Paul is again and again and again highlighting Old Testament verses for us to look at with the idea that he's making. And which ones does he use? Well, I'll call them out to you. He starts with Leviticus, then he quotes Deuteronomy. Then he quotes the Psalms. Then he quotes Isaiah. Then he quotes Joel. Then he quotes Isaiah twice. Psalms, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Isaiah. All in one chapter. I mean, he's just rapid fire going and showing how the idea of salvation is one concept in redemptive history. Not different ways for different people and not different times for different people. And I'll explain that in a minute. But to begin with. What is the proposition or argument being made in all of these citations from the Old Testament? Well, one of them we can look at is in verse 9. Look at 9 through 11. Somebody want to read that, please? Romans 10, verse 9 through 11. Okay. So... Paul is really making the same argument, but he's using different scriptures to do that. So we're looking at that one there, but he does use different ones. In fact, the whole idea of confessing with your mouth and being saved, he uses by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30 just before this. But there's a few things that we can understand that Paul is (coughs) arguing. First of all, that righteousness is found in Christ alone. He makes that clear. There's an emphasis on all. All, not meaning universalism. Every single person everywhere is saved and goes to heaven. But all, meaning all people groups, all nations, all ethnicities. That's why he says what he says in verse 12. And also the method of salvation. right? We talked about righteousness found in Christ alone, but also the method of salvation being faith. Not faith and works, not works then and now faith, but faith. That's why he says what he says before that in verse 8, speaking about faith. Excuse me. But I wanted to call your attention to yet another passage here. Verse 13 of that, it's a quick little verse, and this is one of those that's An evangelistic verse in a lot of churches he says for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved now many of us have heard that growing up but how many of us know that that's a quote from the book of Joel did anybody know that before reading this okay I didn't either Uh, growing up hearing that I thought it was just I, I really don't even know that it was a Bible verse I thought it was just a thing that everybody said But it's from the book of Joel. Not only is it from the book of Joel, but it's the very next verse from what Peter was quoting from Joel back in Acts chapter 2. And this is important because, first of all, Acts chapter 2. Now, follow me with this concept here. Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the book of Joel to show that the church is included in the last days. And the reality of what Joel is saying was happening then happening right then right now paul uses the very next verse of joel as a conclusion to the fact that all are saved in the same way the same manner and the same moment of time moment of time being really important for us because again in dispensational theology again the church is raptured out God deals directly with ethnic Jews in a particular way for them, whether or not they argue there's a different way of salvation. You kind of pick and choose who you talk to based on if they're willing to say that or not. Uh, New dispensational theology doesn't say that, but it does still leave a certain special moment of time after the end of the church age that ethnic Jews are saved. But what Paul does is says all are saved Jew and Greek no distinction all who call on him and then he quotes Joel everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Peter quotes Joel to say that what's happening there in Joel is this age right now conclusion there is no special time after the church age that ethnic Jews are saved any ethnic Jews that will be saved happens all in the same time namely The last days, namely, when Christ comes, until Christ returns again. We're waiting for Christ to return again to consummate the new heavens and new earth. We're not waiting on ten more additional times of history. The last days is the last days, not the second to last, not the third to last, not the tenth to last, but the last days. So that's the conclusion we can come to in Romans 10. There's one time frame of salvation and one way that's the same. Namely, faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Finally, Romans 11. (coughs) Romans 11 is that the truth of Romans 10 is settled... Concerning ethnic Jews, and again, what Paul is not saying here is that ethnic Jews are just don't worry about them anymore. It's not about them. That's not. There's nowhere in the radar of what Paul is saying here. In fact, he goes to great efforts to remind us that ethnic Jews will indeed be saved. Paul himself, being an ethnic Jew, Peter himself, being an ethnic Jew, there was never. A concept where ethnic Jews were no longer allowed to be saved. So let's look, especially, in verse 25. Again, please read this whole chapter. There's a lot being said here, but I'm trying to touch on the highlights. Chapter 25. If somebody will please read Somebody that hasn't read already. 25. In dispensational theology. There's a lot of emphasis placed. On verse 25. The very end of it. That phrase. The fullness. Of the Gentiles. ESV says the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. King James says something about. The idea of. The fullness of the Gentiles. somebody had the King James by chance? It's the same idea, but the phrasing is a little bit different in the King James. But anyways, in that phrase, there's a lot of emphasis placed. For example, the fullness of the Gentiles in dispensational theology. The fullness of the Gentiles is taken to mean the church and the church age. So here's how they understand verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, the church age, salvation being restricted mainly to Gentiles, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the final Gentiles being saved, and then the church being raptured out. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. They see that as meaning ethnic Israel Here's that last time after the church is raptured. Well, God God is now going to deal with ethnic Israel and they'll be saved. So in that, there's a chronological development in dispensational theology. First, Israel is hardened. The church is saved. The church is raptured. And then Israel is finally saved in their own dispensation of time called the millennium. Now, there's a few problems with that. First of all, in my opinion, that's reading a lot into the text there. That's the first problem. The second problem is that, first of all, the fullness of the Gentiles is honestly a difficult phrase to understand or a difficult phrase to interpret. You see that phrase happening, um, especially in the gospel, when Jesus is talking to the Jews about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem and being overthrown. He's saying that this is going to happen until after the Gentile reign is over. That's not the exact phrase that he uses, but he mentions it in terms of authority in politics and in government. So that's not what I think is being talked about here because Paul's talking directly about salvation there's a few different ways that this has been understood throughout church history but I would say the easiest way and the least complicated way is to understand first of all here's what Paul says ethnic Jews will be saved now he's already explained chapter 9 that they're not cast away Chapter 10, they're going to be saved in the same way and manner as anybody else. Chapter 11, that this is, in a way, a mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, in this case meaning ethnic Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that normally is understood to mean, is simply, God's full number of those who he will save. Just plain and simple, God's full number of Gentiles who will be saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I think what Paul is arguing here, because of his use of all, all throughout the book of Romans, is that all refers to both Jews and Gentiles. We saw that at the very end of Galatians, that Paul calls the church the Israel of God the true Israel, the Israel according to promise, if you will. And that's exactly what he argues here, that there will be ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews, and Gentiles that make up all Israel. What you don't see here is this limit of time where right now is all about Gentiles, and then there's this later time where ethnic Jews are going to be concentrated on and and saved. Paul is demonstrating here that this is all within the same time frame. There's also an issue here, not to get too deep into the exegetical side of this verse, but the word partial doesn't necessarily have to do with the amount of time. In other words he's not saying right now they're partially hardened and then one day they won't be anymore, but what he's saying is there's only a partial hardening on ethnic Israel. In other words, not all Israel is hardened and outside of God's saving work. So it has to do with a manner of disposition more than it does a manner of time frame. I hope that makes sense. So in other words, Israel right now is partially hardened. Israel one day will not be partially hardened. That's not the way that Paul lays out the sentence. What he does is he lays out the sentence to say that ethnic Israel Is only partially partially hardened not fully in other words they're not completely cast away from being saved so there's a partial hardening upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in when that happens all Israel will be saved both Jew and Gentile now I grant a difference of opinion in that because honestly um, commentators all throughout time have explained that differently but it leads to our discussion next week when we start thinking about the millennium. I've hinted at it a lot this morning. In dispensational theology, Gentiles are saved now in the church age. When the church is raptured out, the church age ends. Then ethnic Jews are saved in the millennium either by faith in Christ or by faith and works in this new sacrificial system that comes back into play with a real temple etc and then in that same scheme Jesus will physically be present reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years then there's the final judgment and all those things so again we're going to get into that whole time frame idea and, and think about how how that compares to covenant theology but Since we have a few minutes left, I'd like to just end there um, and welcome some questions uh, either from what we've talked about this week or from any of the other four weeks before this because um, they build on one another. So if if you're wrestling with any issue that we've talked about so far, you know, we we have a few minutes. Let's talk about it so that um, next week will maybe make some more sense or this week makes some more sense, either one. Anybody have questions at this point? Okay. Yeah. And and that's a really big discussion in that because dispensationalists are basically a 50-50 split between uh, Calvinists and non-Calvinists. Probably two main examples of those that would be Calvinistic uh, would be John MacArthur, probably the first one that comes to mind. And then Moody Bible Institute as, as um, an academic institution. They have less problems with what we're reading because they believe in eternal security. They believe in the way that we're saved, God's electing purpose God predestining us from the foundation of the world so it's a matter of promise it's a matter of what God intends fully to do but in dispensational varieties that are non-Calvinistic you really get into a lot of problems because you start having teachings that would say Israel really was saved in the Old Testament but then they lost their salvation and then they get it again in the end and even some would teach that all ethnic Jews are resurrected and then in the millennium when Christ is literally on earth for a thousand literal years and they have an opportunity to be saved now because Christ has come and again that's there's so many varieties that it's difficult but like you're saying if, if those verses are dismissed and in my mind you really get into a lot of problems when you get to Romans 10 and 11 and that's the same concept of the Old Testament, I mean God regularly tells them i didn 't choose you Israel because you were greater than every other nation. I chose you to show my power in you again and again. He points to his his goodness and his mercy um, that 's why Paul uses the account in Exodus to prove his point. Anybody have another question? Yes well, in my experience. It's been common, and I don't know, I don't know how common this is, um, because when you get to a John MacArthur, John MacArthur, um, you, you know who that is. Okay, he'll um, look at Romans nine as an explanation of salvation for for everybody, and then when he gets to Romans ten and especially eleven, he kind of sees a textual shift that okay, now we're really just talking about ethnic Israel. Now in my experience, uh, I remember the first few times that I read um, Romans 9 especially and came with with questions to um, somebody who was dispensational. Um, My questions were immediately (laughs) dismissed because the answer I got was, well you don't need to worry about that because Romans 9 through 11 is just talking about God with ethnic Israel. They're just talking about him dealing with ethnic Israel now, obviously as we read it we certainly realized that it has way more to do than just ethnic Israel but oftentimes uh, it's a scary passage for people who aren't willing to wrestle with it um, and when you gloss over it you can dismiss it and say well it's just talking about ethnic Israel don't worry about don't worry about the whole election thing and all that that's neither here nor there. So, unfortunately, that was my experience. 60 seconds for one more question. (laughs) Or I'll I'll just let us out early. That'll be fine, too. Anybody else? Going once, going twice. Awesome. Okay, let me pray. Well, thanks for listening, friends. I hope that that has benefited you greatly in your understanding of the last days. So, as you... Leave from this, I hope that this will produce fruitful conversations that you have, because as we know, normally people jump to extreme conclusions when thinking about the last days. So I hope this will give you some tools for use in your conversations that you can help people see uh, the proper way to understand that perspective of the last days and how it can have great, um, Helpful impact in our lives, how we live, how uh, it affects our marriages, how it affects our um, interaction in church, how it affects um, every aspect of our lives, workplace, etc., etc. There's so many things that this can help us with. Um, so, leave out of here um, with a good call to action to really put this um, framework of the last days into practice in all the different facets of life um, that make up your day-to-day experience. I would encourage you to leave out of here and spend some time in those passages, Romans 9 through 11, as you continue to think through this concept. But with this, I'll leave you. Thank you for participating and head on over to betterbiblereading.com where you can find the show notes to this episode, as well as those of all previous episodes. God bless you and take care.